Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. News media coverage is being dominated by health and public health policy due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, one issue that has not received as much attention is the effect on crime rates due to the pandemic's impact on our lifestyles. Dr. Ben Stickle, an associate professor of criminal justice administration, has co-authored with Marcus Felsen a peer-reviewed article on the subject titled Crime Rates in a Pandemic, the Largest Criminological Experiment in History, which was published in the American Journal of Criminal Justice. Crime and COVID after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU alum Joseph Julizia is fortunate to be one of 58 recipients of a fellowship from the Honor Society of Phi Kappa Phi, the nation's oldest and most selective collegiate honor society. His stipend of $8,500 will help pay for his pursuit of graduate degrees in poultry science at Auburn University. Julizia, a Fairview, Tennessee native, graduated from MTSU last December with a bachelor's degree in animal science. Julizia, who intends to pursue both master's and doctorate degrees, said he wants to improve the bird's nutrition while cutting expenses for farmers. An MTSU Honors College Dean, John Vile, is the new recipient of the Honor Society of Phi Kappa Phi Scholar Award. Vile, who has been Honors Dean since 2008, earned the recognition citation for his excellence in teaching, research, and public service. The Phi Kappa Phi Scholar and Artist Awards honor those individuals who demonstrate the ideals of the society through their activities, achievements, and scholarship. Recipients receive the citation, life membership, and a $1,000 donation to nonprofit organizations of their choice. Awards are presented every two years. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, Ben, virtually this time around. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be back. Uh, the paper isn't so much an analysis of empirical crime data since the pandemic began as it is a call for your colleagues to take advantage of a remarkable research opportunity, even though it comes as the result of a tragedy for millions around the world. Uh, tell us how you think academia should approach the subject of crime in the pandemic. You're absolutely right. There is very little data, at least uh, when this publish, uh, paper was published a short time ago, to really take a look at, to really understand what is actively going on in crime rates in the U.S. and definitely not around the world. So that's going to be coming. So this paper was less of a data-driven paper and more of a theoretical approach. And what I'm calling for is exactly what you just said, that researchers around the world from all different fields would take this opportunity to really look at crime and what happened during uh, the COVID pandemic, as we're coming to call it, uh, specifically looking at how uh, crime was impacted before, during, and following. Because I think this provides a very unfortunate, as you pointed out, opportunity for us to really look at crime very specifically and see some real depth and some real results. That will be very important as we learn to prevent crime and to study crime as we go forward. So it was a call for uh, several different techniques to be used for researchers around the world uh, to really focus on this issue. You have the crime rate change broken down in seven different uh, 
periods, time periods for examination. Talk about that. When we measure crime, sometimes it's very simple to just look at, well, what happened last month or even last year? And this is because of the current uh, COVID issue, actually something we're seeing, we're looking at measuring uh, infection rates from like week to week and month to month. And so sometimes we do similar things with uh, crime data. And the concern that I have, and a similar concern for looking at even uh, health and COVID issues is that's not always the best example of what is really going on. And it's very difficult to actually find trends within just a week or month, and even some cases a year. What I'm calling for specifically bringing this back to crime is measuring the change in crime, looking at several different, uh, as you said, seven different periods. And what I'm looking for here is some type of baseline. What was the crime rate before we had any issues with COVID-19. So this could be up to a year before, and that would be ideal. And then what we want to do is look into the second stage, which would be somewhere around mid-February to mid-March. What I think you'll find is that there will be some small changes in crime during this period, because this is the time when people begin to have some awareness of the impending uh, issues that we've dealt with this year and may have started to voluntarily change some uh, lifestyles. So they may have gone out less. And by going out less, uh, you're less of a uh, opportunity to be a victim of a crime and it starts changing some things. But these are relatively soft and small changes. And then what I think is really important that I really hit home very hard in this paper is looking at when the stay-at-home orders or the lockdowns or whatever you'd like to call them were legally implemented within communities. Because when that occurred, you had a sudden and drastic overnight shift, as it were, from free activity, from the, the routines that you might normally be engaged with, with a huge portion of the population now being locked inside their homes. And I think that will have a tremendous impact on crime. We're looking at how crime was going before, uh, looking at some of the period just before these orders were implemented. And then I call for at least two periods to look at crime during the actual uh, stay-at-home orders. Depending on how long these orders were implemented, you're going to have people who respond in different ways. So as you're familiar with, some uh, states and communities had uh, stay-at-home orders for only a few weeks or a month. Others had it for several months. And it's very likely that people who are told to stay at home for a long period of time will eventually begin to get out a little bit more. And in fact, we have seen some data that shows that that's very true, that this effect uh, changes over time. And so I think it's important to look at data both at the beginning of a stay-at-home order and the end of it. Then I have periods after this, which are, uh, as I put in the paper, kind of ill-defined. Because when I submitted this for publication, many of the states were not even released from lockdown orders yet. And so it's really hard to say. But again, the point I was trying to make is that just because all of a sudden a lockdown order is rescinded, it doesn't mean it's Katie bar the door, life is back to normal. In fact, things will begin to roll out very slowly as we have now seen, which is why it's important to continue looking at crime. But... Uh, having some smaller blocks for that. So maybe looking at the month or two after we have a stay-at-home order release, and then maybe the uh, month three and four after that as well. And so the goal of this is to get a very detailed, very in-depth understanding of how crime has been impacted during the entire uh, COVID process. Now, with the sectionalizing of the research into these time periods, have any substantive effect of any kind of alteration or variation on the uh, 
academic research processes that are necessary for a research project to have credibility. I know, for example, that uh, sample size is very important in establishing the credibility of an academic study. Uh, does breaking things down into time periods have any substantial alteration on the usual standards academia applies to research projects? Well, one of the unfortunate side effects of this um, pandemic, and that's partially why I titled the paper uh, what I did, calling it the largest criminological experiment in history, is the typical ways that we research crime and break things down don't really apply anymore. So like I said, we're looking at a, a fairly small time period, and we're looking at dramatic changes that we are seeing in some areas of crime, some areas as much as 50 and 60% reduction in crime uh, during this time period. And what we generally have to do as social scientists is account for uh, racial differences, uh, gender differences, uh, income differences, all different types of things that we want to, to kind of control for those variables so we can truly measure the crime. And again, like I said, the unfortunate side effect is we have somewhat of a randomized control trial in that uh, your income didn't change, at least not at first during the pandemic, uh, whether or not you have great self-control or whether or not you have an addiction problem, those things didn't change the first few weeks of the pandemic. And so all these things that we normally look for really didn't change for at least the first month or so. And that is the kind of exciting part about this, again, unfortunate, that now we don't have to control for some of these variables or wonder, well, maybe it was the way the person's raised and impacting whether or not they're committing crime. We can truly isolate, if you will, for just a few variables, particularly the lockdown orders and the stay-at-home orders. And those, I think, are the key to understanding crime and understanding how people respond uh, to it. And it will really augment uh, research in the future. So rather than kind of restricting research, what I'm saying is so many other factors can almost be uh, somewhat ignored if you're studying a very tight uh, span of time. And instead, we should focus on the time for how these things happen. So I'm kind of uh, augmenting the research and kind of making researchers aware that some of these other attributes we don't have to follow as closely because the changes are so large Time for a break here. We'll come back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Ben Stickle is our guest. He's an associate professor of criminal justice administration, and we're talking about 
crime rates during the COVID-19 pandemic and the best way to attempt to uh, wrap our heads around them in the relative absence of empirical data, at least as yet. Does the lack of a cohesive, let alone coherent, national approach to the pandemic help or hurt researchers studying crime rates in this situation? I think it absolutely helps uh, researchers to a great, um, ex- uh, just a quick example, uh, Pennsylvania initially uh, closed liquor stores uh, saying they were not essential. And what happened was a cascading of people who left the state and went to Delaware and West Virginia and other states who left them open to the point that even in Delaware, they had to set up the state police as roadblocks at liquor store entrances and turn around everybody with Pennsylvania license plates. Uh, and so what this does is it creates a naturally occurring experiment for us to understand how the absence of liquor sales impacts crime in one specific state compared to another state. Another example I talk about in the paper is that uh, Kentucky uh, had different uh, times that it went into a state home order and rescinded it and had different things that were closed compared to a neighboring state in Tennessee. Now, the advantage is Tennessee and Kentucky share a lot of similarities as far as demographics and things of that nature. So now we have another example where we can test theories and say, okay, what happened in this state as opposed to that state? And one just final example I'll give you. Some states, as a result of this, have released a number of prisoners from their prison system, and other states have done less of that. So again, now we can look at the question of were the people who were released? Uh, Are they likely to recidivate, that is, commit another crime in return, or likely not? And so all of these differing variations by states actually allow researchers a greater number of tools to really test so many theories that we've had for so long. Do we need to lock people up as long as we do for the offenses that we do. Well, now we have an opportunity to study that. Do alcohol licensors, uh, licenses being opened uh, co- allow more crime? Now we have an opportunity to study that and compare between the states. So I think this is a very, again, unfortunate but exciting opportunity for us to look at all these different things and really get some answers to some questions that were very difficult to get in any other way. Since you you essentially have local and state jurisdictional leaders making their own decisions, and that has uh, resulted in a variety of approaches, Tennessee hasn't had many jurisdictional orders until lately with a few counties now issuing mandatory mask wearing orders, and that's just been very recently. Could the lack of pandemic-related mandates have an impact on the crime rates? I think that the the orders that have been given will have an impact on crime. I don't know that it will be um, which direction that will be. So one concern, in fact, I had a phone call with about 30 different retail establishments. Um, and one of the questions they were asking about crime uh, during the pandemic is looking at uh, the requirements of masks. So generally, most stores have a policy that you're not allowed to cover your face when you come in. And that's been established for longstanding research. Um, and has been proven to really reduce the number of robberies. Just as simple as someone who intends to rob a store when they come in, they're greeted and said, you have to remove your mask or your bandana or whatever it might be, uh, generally reduces robberies. And so the question that the retailers are asking me, which I can't answer yet, is how have 
uh, robbery has been impacted when everyone's required to wear a mask. So again, I think this will be another interesting data point to see, you know, are robberies increasing in one community that requires face masks as opposed to another um, and provide yet another layer and opportunity for us to kind of look at the response and how people are adapting to either commit crime or not commit crime based on the mandates that are given. How do you feel about criminalizing failure to comply with the public health protocols related to the pandemic, fining somebody 50 or $100 or maybe even for multiple offenses, dragging them off to the pokey for failure to comply? I think there is some room for questioning uh, whether we want to make this uh, something that we can arrest you for uh, and then put you in with a small group of people who can't physical distance and, and, and put you into the court system. So there are a lot of interesting issues that come up uh, with this. And I think we need to be very careful. Again, it's one thing to say we recommend that uh, face masks be worn and we encourage it. Uh, but then to, to add the potential jail time to it does add an interesting perspective that I think we need to be careful for. And I think society is very quick to say, well, this is wrong, therefore we should be a law against it. Um, and I think that can lead us into uh, an over-criminalization of, of many of our actions. We'll take a break right here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Crime Rates in a Pandemic, the largest criminological experiment in history, is the title of a peer-reviewed article that was published in the American Journal of Criminal Justice, co-authored by Dr. Ben Stickle, an associate professor of criminal justice administration, and uh, Marcus Felsen and Ben is our guest. While the civil rights demonstrations following the death of George Floyd have been largely peaceful, what effect will the statistics on looting and violence during those demonstrations have on the analysis? Do they skew things out of proportion or would they be statistically insignificant? That's a really good question. And you know, it was um, interesting to have this paper be published and then uh, followed either that same week or the week after with the beginning of the protests um, and in some cases riots and all manner of things that went on. And I suddenly thought to myself, well, there goes, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the paper, uh, because uh, looking at how things have transitioned after the fact is going to be very difficult and uh, complicated. Uh, because of some of these issues. But then I kind of took a, a step back and thought more about some of the things that I was uh, calling for in the paper. Um, and just like everything else, um, a lot of the specific violence that has occurred around these things has been very uh, targeted to a very 
a small number of cities, if you will. And so, you know, if you were going to try and look at uh, crime rates uh, in Nashville, for example, um, the week that we had so much uh, unrest may be a difficult time to look at that. But there are other communities who didn't experience that unrest in the same way. And we can maybe look at those communities to continue uh, you know, really get an idea of crime trends. The other thing that I'll point out is even though there has been a lot of civil unrest in different areas in different ways, one of the things I call for in the paper is to look at crime very specifically. So it's a very uh, poor idea, if you will, to look at just this crime rate in general or look at all thefts. And it's much better to be very specific when you're dealing with certain types of crime. So one of the examples is uh, burglary. In burglary, you can have of a uh, person's home, you can have it at a commercial business, and you can even have it at a retail store. And so you're much better off looking at burglary rates, if you will, as what I call for, on those at least three different uh, categories. And it's questionable whether some of that information will be too clouded by some of the things that have gone on uh, in the world since. There are probably some cities where that is in fact the case. Um, and if you uh, want to look at those cities, then I think you could kind of look at some of those cases and pull those out because it should be fairly obvious which of those are resulted uh, in response uh, to the issue. So overall, the, the answer is I was a little uh, concerned at first, but having stepped back and thought, well, you can still look at other cities who didn't have some of these issues. And you can also look at uh, crime that isn't involved in some type of tumultuous behavior, right? Um, that should be uh, still able to take a look at. Well, there are lots of anecdotal common sense assumptions one might make that might not necessarily be true because they haven't been, um, you know, analyzed according to academic standards. And one of those assumptions might be that with people staying home more and tensions and frustrations with lifestyle changes rising, that domestic violence might increase. Is there any evidence to support that? Or is, is that uh, a, a specific area that researchers could and should hone in on during this pandemic? Yeah, so you asked two questions and the answers uh, yes to both. Um, is there any evidence to look at domestic violence rates and issues surrounding that during uh, the stay-at-home orders? The answer is yes. The initial results are indicating there is no impact uh, from what I've seen. Um, and so that's been very surprising. Now, again, I will caution this and say that the data that I'm talking about where said there wasn't much of an impact was looking at the very early part of the stay-at-home orders, right? So this is, again, why it was important to break that down into at least two categories, because it could be that the first two weeks, maybe things are more harmonious in the last two or four or six weeks. So uh, it is important to continue to get research. So right now, uh, from what I'm reading, many people are theorizing that that will be higher, but so far the results in the early stages have not borne that out. Now, is it possible that later on that does become an issue? I think very likely it is. And again, why you know it's so important to look at this, not from a, a yes-no dichotomous, but look at how it changes over time to look at really, again, what the issues are behind the crime and ultimately how to prevent it in the future. If the unemployment rate spikes again as the number of COVID cases spike, uh, could this not lead to uh, an increase in economic desperation, which would factor into an increase in crime rates? 
I think there's definitely a possibility that could happen again. Why I think it's important to look at uh, having periods after the stay-at-home orders to really uh, look at the magnitude of that. The other thing that I think is really important, and I didn't discuss it in the paper, but I, I think is important for criminologists and other researchers to understand, uh, there may be more to look at than just the unemployment rate. So uh, it is entirely possible that those who may be unemployed uh, if they're able to uh, get into some type of system that provides some uh, financial incentive for them for some time, uh, that we won't see those effects until later. Should the temporal approach also be applied to cyber crimes? Uh, if we're talking about uh, attempts at frauding someone, that's one thing. If we're talking about uh, online merchandise return frauds, you know, that's a form of cyber crime to some degree. If we're talking about abuse or stalking, so there's so many different areas to look at rather than just one um, area. How we spend our time, our routine activities, is really what's shifted during this. And so you might have been more likely to be a victim at work, right, over uh, before, an early part of this year. Um, and now you may be more likely to be a victim online because you are just spending more time online, just like you used to spend more time at work. And so it's the routine activities of where we normally are that often give opportunities for us to be uh, victims of crime, um, that is really important. So if we're shifting from more of an office perspective or even a school perspective, right, because violence does occur at schools, but now children are online more, then there's more opportunities there. And so what we see is that opportunity is a huge factor with crime. And so we need to look at how those are changing with the activities that we uh, partake in every day. Does the temporal approach also work during this pandemic in regard to uh, furthering the cause of research into porch piracy. There's a significant increase in purchasing online, right? A uh, huge uh, driver in that. So we're receiving more and more packages than we ever have. Uh, and so again, there's more and more opportunity. At the same time, even though many of us are home more, there could be a variety of reasons that we're not retrieving our packages as quickly. So if you have someone who's working from home uh, and trying to uh, be on a conference call and handle a child who's needing help with their homework and you know, uh, on and on, then the doorbell rings and there's a package. Well, they know it, but they don't have time and they forget about it. The next thing you know, the package is there for a day. Or maybe, and especially initially, there was a concern about uh, the virus being transmitted by packages and mail. So people uh, might leave packages for longer on their porch. I know my neighbor did that sometimes 24 to 40 hours. Uh, so there's more opportunity there. And then lastly, just the routine. So I had a routine. I came home from work. I would park the car. I would check the mail. I would go in the front door and get any packages. I don't do that every day anymore. And so it's easy to miss some of those packages. So I think with the increase in uh, deliveries being made, along with the change in our, again, routine activities, we're going to have some interesting impacts on crime. Dr. Ben Stickle, an associate professor of criminal justice administration and a former police officer who has walked the walk and been there and done that to end on two cliches instead of one. Thank you so much for being our guest. Happy to be here. I enjoyed it. We'll be right back. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
NTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. Metropolitan Nashville Airport Authority President and CEO Doug Krulin will speak at MTSU's 9-11 Remembrance Ceremony, which will be virtual on September 11th because of the coronavirus pandemic. Keith M. Huber, Senior Advisor for Veterans and Leadership Initiatives, shares more. Our annual 9-11 Remembrance Ceremony occurs at the Veterans Memorial here at Middle Tennessee State University campus. And that memorial identifies the 69 alumni who, while in service of our nation, have died in combat. And eight of those since 9-11, six in Iraq and two in Afghanistan. So this is something that we do with the community and the first responders and our veterans to ensure that this date is not forgotten. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com, Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.